Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 88. In this week's Q&A, I'm co-hosting together with coach Lachlan Kieran, who you can find on scientifictriathlon.com on the coaching page and uh, on the team page. That's where you'll find more about his background if you haven't heard the previous times that he's been on the podcast. You can also just put his name in the search bar on the website and you'll find those previous episodes to learn more about his background. But uh, we will get into the question, which uh, has to do with uh, polarized training and training intensity distributions and uh, discuss that in more of an open format with Lockie today rather than the typical structure that I have. And I really hope that you can uh, give us feedback on how you enjoy this format for the Q&A episodes after you've uh, listened to this, because uh, I would be more than happy to do more of these co-hosted uh, podcasts, because personally, I think that they are really great because you hear not just my perspective but another uh, coach's perspective as well and uh, we can discuss around some topics and uh, give each other some some ideas and thoughts which can generate just better discussions and a very uh, multifaceted uh, i guess answer to to the questions but we'll get into that after thanking our thanking our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com Precision Hydration make electrolyte products that you can tailor to match your sweat rate. So depending on if you are a low, a moderate or high sodium sweater, then that might uh, determine what sort of electrolytes you should uh, put in your fluids when you're training and racing. You can take their free online sweat test to get an idea of uh, where you might fall. And also make sure to sign up for their newsletter because there's tons of great content and great opportunities and offers there. Quite recently, for example, Precision Hydration has been offering one-on-one consultations with one of their team's experts. So that's obviously a fantastic opportunity for people that are on the newsletter uh, to get a free consultation. And I'm not sure if they're running them anymore by the time that you hear this, but uh, to not miss future offers like that, then uh, just go and sign up for that newsletter. You can get 15% off your order of electrolytes with the promo code show 15 on precisionhydration.com. And big thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Just 20 minutes ago or so, as I was uh, in the middle of preparing uh, this recording, I got the delivery and it was the Maverick X2 wetsuit, Roka's newest flagship wetsuit model. And uh, I've got to send huge thanks to Roka. Uh, I do get this wetsuit for free. I'm really, really looking forward to trying it out in the open water because uh, I own the Maverick X wetsuit, the original a flagship model from Roka and it was an absolutely it is an absolutely amazing wetsuit and the Maverick X2 has taken that and improved it even further with even more buoyancy a redesigned core to make a better a transfer of power from the hips to the shoulders and to better propulsion in the water as a consequence you can get the Maverick X2 or any other Roka products for 20% off with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's the Q&A with uh, myself and uh, Coach Lachlan Kieran. So welcome to uh, this week's Q&A, Lachie. It's great to have you co-hosting. How are you doing? Good, thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me back. 
Great to have you. And uh, let's just uh, read through the question once more before we get into answering it and uh, our thoughts on it. So the question is from Martin in the United Kingdom who writes, uh, Hi, Michael. I want to ask about the whole Siler 8020 polarized training approach. When it comes to triathlon, do you have to train each sport in the 8020 slash and 9010 distribution or can the distribution be applied to total training time? For example, could you do all your easy training time in running and all your hard training in cycling? So um, let's uh, start here with perhaps just giving some general thoughts around the polarized training and 80-20 uh, training models. Uh, what, uh, what, what do you think about this? What comes to mind? I think, you know, number one, we kind of have to define uh, what we're defining as low intensity and high intensity here. So to keep it as simple as possible, and, and certainly there's nuance within these zones that we can talk about a bit later, but um, I think we can both agree on a three-zone model when we're talking about a polarized approach. So, um, you know, zone one would, would be anything below aerobic threshold, um, and we, we would term that the low intensity, um, with the high intensity being zone three or anything above anaerobic threshold, um, and, and zone two falling between that. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, so, uh, and in terms of finding those those points, I think there's probably an, a number of ways, and I guess the optimal way would be to go into a lab um, and get the results and see those turn points. Um, obviously, that's not accessible for everyone, so there are some kind of um, easy ways to determine that aerobic threshold or a good approximation of it anyway. Um, some that come to mind for me would be, uh, you know, that point where you can still nose breathe, um, and that's not for ten seconds. That's for you know an extended period of time. Um, anecdotally, doesn't always work. I know for me personally, um, I tend to have quite blocked sinuses, so uh, even sitting on the couch and nose breathing is a bit of a challenge. Um, you know, another way might be to be able to, if you had music in, you could sing along without, you know, absolutely huffing and puffing. Yeah, I think that that uh, the talk test uh, singing is is new to me, but uh, it's something that I use a lot uh, with uh, prescribing work at the aerobic threshold is, uh, or just below it is. You should be able to talk in uh, complete sentences, say a, a few complete sentences, like a short paragraph, without huffing and puffing, and that's something that uh, Carl Foster's work has sort of proven and validated against uh, a laboratory measurements. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, from a coaching perspective as well, once you have enough data and, you know, enough long workouts and you can kind of compare those to to the maximal heart rates, um, you know, you can get a fairly good idea of where that point sits as well. Yeah, so we have uh, defined those uh, those points, the zones and, uh, and, and uh, the demarcation points of them. So uh, w- what are your opinion about your opinions about actually the distribution, the 80-20 and the polarized? And perhaps we should just, if you want to talk about the difference between 80-20 and polarized, because it's not necessarily the same. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as we come back to 80-20, um, and I think you agree with this that, you know, we're talking about 80% of sessions um, being low intensity and 20% of sessions including high intensity. So obviously if you're going out and doing a 90-minute session, um, it's not all going to be over threshold. Um, you know, we're talking that includes the warm-up main set, you know, 
uh, rest periods and stuff as well. Um, so when we're talking about 80-20, I think we're probably talking about that distribution of, of um, sessions. Um, would you agree with that? Sort of, yes, in, in Siler's work, absolutely. But I also think that 80-20 as a, as a concept, as a name of a training uh, methodology or philosophy has become very strongly associated with uh, Matt Fitzgerald and uh, David Warden's work. And, and I think in their methodology, they're actually talking about the time and not the sessions, which is perhaps a mistake because Siler definitely started with talking about sessions, as you say. But I think that it's also now associated with sort of the training training time, and uh, so that's that's one source of confusion, I think. And uh, I don't know what the what the right or wrong answer is, but these are all just models we have to uh, remember, I guess. So so it doesn't necessarily matter uh, which is the right one. We just have to find the right one for each for each athlete. Exactly, and that's where you know, I mean, depending on your volume, right? Like it an 80-20 split of sessions might also, uh, you know, end up being 80-20 um, in terms of time. Um, it's just dependent on, you know, if you're doing 30 hours a week, if you're doing 20% of that. Um, above threshold, that's obviously <laughs> a lot of time, and I think we'd both agree that in that sense um, it would probably be near impossible. Mm, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, so going... I'm just going to look through my notes here um, and to see, keep us on track here. So uh, when, when we have, whether we're talking about sessions or times uh, is the polarized training concept and the 80, 20, something that you, what are the, the key points of it that you generally agree with? And are there any points that you uh, are not necessarily in complete agreement with? Yeah. So, I mean, coming back to where we just were, I probably lean you know, if I'm looking at this model towards, you know, a time and zone approach or, um, and then if we go back to say Siler's work there, um, and some of the studies that he references, it's probably something more like 90% of the time, um, you know, in those elite cross country ski, um, kind of studies that they've done that is below that aerobic threshold. Um, and fundamentally, I, I think I, I really do believe in that, you know, just high, you know, percentage of total volume being at or below aerobic threshold. I think there's, you know, a huge benefit there to be had in terms of developing um, that aerobic capacity. And, and, you know, there's been studies as well that show that we can elicit kind of maximal stroke volume at quite low percentages of VO2 max, really, you know, 40, 60% um, in an article that, that Alan Cousins wrote um, where he referenced a study um, that was done. So, you know, I think working in, I think that 90% of time is um, sometimes missed. And I think what we, what I see in athletes who, who follow this approach or who talk to me about it is um, the emphasis is on the intensity um, and, and that's, almost seen as where all the gains are made and, and that the 90% of time uh, at low intensity is almost just facilitating that. Um, but for me, I feel as though that's almost missing the forest for the trees. Um, I think that that time uh, below aerobic threshold is actually critically important and, and over the long term is um, what really leads to that development. Mm. And when it comes to that, so getting the most out of that 90%, do you have any special preferences for how you like to structure and prescribe 
that intensity i'm talking about for example do you like a lot of that time to be fairly close to the aerobic threshold so sort of we're talking mid to high zone two or is it really uh, basically dependent on how much volume the athlete is doing so how much energy they have to to do the work uh, also obviously how strong an athlete they are somebody with a 400 watt ftp is going to be doing significantly less uh aerobic threshold work than somebody with a 200 watt ftp and and so on what 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 are your thoughts around structuring that low intensity work yeah so this is where that nuance that i was talking about comes in a little bit so you know within zone one in a, in a polarized model um you know we might have something like recovery easy and maybe you know steady or what we might call aerobic so you know that mid to top zone two um and so you know for athletes with say as you talked about a really high ftp those ranges in terms of of wattage um are actually quite large um and and as you mentioned if we're pushing to the top of zone two or or aerobic threshold in let's just say an elite ironman athlete who's at say 300 watts um you know just the cost of that is is very high we're looking at um let me just do some calculations here but i I think about 1100 calories an hour or or something like that um you know at 300 watts so to be doing a lot of work there it's very hard to fuel that output um so if we're sending an athlete out for five hours at 300 watts um, to, to fuel that even if they are burning a lot of fats they're still also burning a lot of carbohydrates um and i think that over time you know we have to consider that actually working significantly below aerobic threshold can be very beneficial, especially with athletes that have the time available to do so. Um, you know, conversely to that, when we look at athletes that have a much lower FTP, those those ranges become much more narrow. Um, so perhaps we have you know a, a little less room to move, I would say. But in that sense, maybe we just combine easy and and steady or aerobic as we call it into more of one zone yeah yeah i completely agree with that and and i think actually if we're we were talking about cycling here and ftp but this becomes even more important when we're talking about running because of the impact forces that somebody who is a very fast runner with an an lt1 of 345 or aerobic threshold of 345 per per kilometer or something like if they go out and run at that pace for a lot of their runs then they're pretty quickly going to run into a very significant risk of of injuries and uh and the load is just going to be so much bigger on on the musculoskeletal system even if they don't have actual injuries but just because of the eccentric work that is done and so on so so that's where having different ranges for depending on the different ability levels becomes even more important because you don't have just the metabolic side but you also have the musculoskeletal side to to take into account totally and i think that's also where um for the most part i mean there are exceptions to this but i tend to work in terms of prescription um much more on a on a time prescription as, as opposed to say distance um you know and especially in running I, I mean obviously in cycling as well um swimming that's a different story we we probably would usually use um distance prescription but for the other two often for me it's it's done on time mm, yeah so one uh 
point that I want your your opinion on when it comes to polarized training or 80-20 is uh, that's where we have a difference, for example, when we're looking at especially original research by Seiler and the 80-20 as popularized in books by Matt Fitzgerald and David Warden, is that polarized refers to not just having that high volume at low intensity, but then the time that you have that you spend that is not low intensity tends to skew towards the high intensity rather than the moderate. That's where the word polarized comes from. Whereas 80-20 doesn't really take into account or it doesn't really uh, discriminate that much between where you spend the time of training that is not spent in the low intensity zone. It can be at the moderate intensity intensity training or it can be the high intensity training, however you see fit or whatever your coach prescribes to you or uh, that sort of thing. So they are slightly different there. And I think that's uh, also a misconception that we have sometimes that people don't remember that polarized actually refers to having that sort of skew towards high intensity. Uh, and how do you feel about that? Yeah, no, I tend to agree with you on that front. Um, you know, again, coming back to some of these studies of, of elite athletes who are doing you know, high volume, we're talking 20 to 20 to 30 hours a week. Um, you know, what we see is that, yes, that 90% is is certainly below that aerobic threshold or, or low intensity. Um, and I think what I've kind of seen is, and, you know, this is coming back to some of Stephen Sala's um, presentations as well, is that um, similar to what you're talking about, actually there is still some work there or time in zone, um, you know, in that threshold or, or zone two range, um, as well as time, you know, above threshold. Now, obviously, uh, you know, for any athlete that trains outside, it's going to be very difficult to, to avoid any time in zone in terms of t- zone two. Um, you know, simply by going out and riding with any hills, you, you're probably going to get some time across all three zones there. So, um, in terms of being extremely strict about it, I think that's that's very difficult. Um, you know, I also think that, as I mentioned before, I think that that ninety percent of time in zone is is probably where a lot of the benefits come, um, and that high intensity or, or work above, um, you know, anaerobic threshold for me is is much more the icing on the cake, so to speak, um, but certainly valuable. And if we're doing a specific block of of intensity um, and, you know, looking at a polarised approach, then, yes, I am probably looking to keep that work above threshold or anaerobic thresholds. Mm, yeah. Uh, so my opinion on this is uh, is actually that uh, I'm, I'm definitely not convinced that the polarised approach in terms of skewing uh, towards the high intensity rather than the moderate intensity is the best way to go for triathletes and i think there's still a lot of work to be done there because we have to remember that the studies uh, that have pointed towards this being the distribution that elite athletes use are done in sports that are quite different to triathlon because there are shorter events like cross-country skiing uh, only the 50 kilometer or 30 kilometer for women is uh, is a long issue and event but then other than that most events are 30 minutes or shorter so uh, comparable to a 10k on the track which uh, which is a very different event to uh, even an, an Olympic distance triathlon. Most definitely, yeah. So so I do not necessarily think that yeah necessarily agree with with the the idea that that the moderate intensity zone 
isn't valuable. I actually think it's very valuable, and especially for uh, half and full distance triathletes. Uh, but uh, like like you, I agree that a lot of the benefit comes from the the low intensity training. So, but that's that's where the sort of the there are a lot of misconceptions around that because I think that the one of the great points that Steven Seiler's research has brought up is the amount of volume in a low intensity training zone and how that can be super beneficial and i'm totally on board with that but that doesn't mean that the entire principle is something that everybody has to agree on and and i still think there are things that we can't apply like just right out of the box for triathlon from those studies that have been done totally and and you know i think we also have to consider that you know once we start working you know, over anaerobic threshold or, you know, keeping it very polarized. Obviously, any time then that we're doing intensity, we're also, um, you know, really working those uh, anaerobic energy systems as well. And and especially for long course triathlon, um, depending on the athlete and depending on, you know, their VLA max and things like that, it, it potentially is not really what we want to be doing um, in that phase. So especially in those phases where, you know, say we are trying to decrease VLA max. Um, I know that uh, you've spoken with Sebastian Weber um, recently as well, but um, it's, it's very important to, to keep that kind of strength work and, and tempo work in there as well. And, I've, you know, I know you and I have both seen success with that with, with athletes, so to dismiss it would, be, um, would probably not be the right thing to do. Yeah, def- definitely, and and I think personally, in the in the last year or two, I've more and more been skewing the the training that is not low intensity has gone from being slightly more polarized, not completely polarized, but maybe a fifty fifty split or so, and now I'm actually more and more prescribing that mid zone work and seeing really good success with with that and uh, decreasing the amount of of high intensity training that that i prescribe so uh yeah that's but again these are just sort of things that um anecdotally for us we have uh we we are we are doing but it doesn't mean that it's right and the individual uh is uh might react differently from uh, to another individual of course so so it's not we're not trying we're not trying to uh establish any rules here we're just no no and yeah, and I mean, for me, you know, purely from where I sit when I'm prescribing training and, and my mindset is that more or less anything over aerobic threshold is, is what I consider intensity when I'm, you know, thinking about how we're moving into the next block or, or next week or whatever it is. But, um, you know, I know the interview that you did uh, with, I think it was, was it Chris? Uh, oh, sorry, David Bishop. You know, he spoke about potentially including some of that tempo work um, as low intensity as well. So um, there's certainly different approaches to that as well. Yeah, and that's actually, that's an interview that stuck with me and and that specific comment that he made, uh, I've actually applied that in my coaching and and I do find that it's true because if I count the tempo work uh, as the sort of high intensity, for, well, first of all, uh, I totally agree that it's a, that's a good way to view it, like not view it as free zones, but just view it as low intensity and anything that's not low intensity. And uh, and that's more going towards the Matt Fitzgerald model where it's the, the 80-20 versus the polarized model. You don't necessarily need to discriminate between the the moderate intensity and the high intensity uh, 
but uh, but then the David Bishop comment actually that's something that I that I noticed that if I prescribe tempo work, I definitely can prescribe more of that quote unquote not low intensity work than if I prescribe that non low intensity work as threshold or definitely high intensity interval VO two max work. So which seems to be beneficial in terms of the athlete's response because they can just get in some good high aerobic work, uh, but they can do more of that and just collect good time in zone, which is one of the concepts that Siler himself talks about a lot, collecting minutes at like good uh, good outputs. So good outputs, of course, can really depend on the context again, but but that's something that, I, yeah. that has stuck with me, the David Bishop comment. Totally. I thought that was a great interview. And, and I mean, at risk of making this episode a little bit longer, I think one last thing I'd like to touch on before we move on is that, you know, even within, um, you know, that quote unquote low intensity, we can actually play around with, with, especially on the bike anyway, we can play around with cadence to kind of get some slightly different um, stimulus as well. So, you know, using torque is, is very valuable. Yes, absolutely. No, that's that's something that I, that I also uh, rely on very much in even within that uh, low intensity work. So let's get to the the question then. So the the question here is: Can does the uh, the distribution of time in zone here, low intensity, moderate, high intensity, does that apply to the entire triathlon program, or or uh, does it need to be applied to each specific discipline? thoughts on that so i think the first place to start here is swimming um you know i think for a lot of people actually swimming below aerobic threshold is probably a very hard thing to do um and again it's it's a hard thing to even actually really know where that might sit um in terms of feel um so when it comes to swimming i think we also can understand that it's essentially no impact. Um, and I think what you see, though, is a lot of swim programs with a lot of high intensity um, relative to an athlete's you know, threshold. It's a, it's a lot of work over threshold and <clears throat> often very short rest periods. Um, and I think what we've seen, I mean, I've seen it certainly, is um, with the lack of swimming in the last kind of, for my athletes probably a couple months um it's it's probably actually allowed them to do a bit more on the bike and run and i think that they've realized that potentially especially athletes that were doing a lot of their swimming with squad or squad environments um you know that they're they're kind of missing that longer aerobic work Um, i don't know if you found that with your athletes as well Uh, missing the longer aerobic work in terms of uh aerobic work that they get from swimming or Oh no! Just in terms of yeah, in terms of swimming, actually doing some quote unquote low intensity swimming. Um, I found some of my athletes kind of realised that pretty much every time they swam, it was you know as hard as they could for most of the session. Oh, so you're saying that now some of them can can swim at the moment, but they're swimming on their own, so not in the squad, and they're benefiting. Yeah, yeah, and open and especially open water, open water. as well. You know, got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I. I I haven't seen that because my athletes, actually, the situation I have with my athletes is that uh, almost nobody that I can think of right now off the top of my head is actually swimming still. But I can totally see how that would be the case. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so then if we move to the to the bike and run, um, do we need to kind of distribute that intensity 
uh, evenly across the sessions. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, what, yeah, exactly. Whether whether the distribution needs to be applied within each discipline or whether it applies more as a whole to the entire program. Yeah, so I think we need to probably think about two things here is, is one, that kind of central development. So, you know, in terms of stroke volume in the heart and all the, those kind of things, well, in that sense, one would say probably not. Um, well, I would say anyway, and, and you see that. I mean, you see swimmers and and cyclists still getting fantastic vo2 scores running and is it what they would also get biking or swimming no no it's not and you know the reason there is you know as we actually look at the the muscle recruitment and the muscles we're using you know we're seeing differences i mean obviously from swimming a big difference but but even between running and biking you know yes we're using similar muscle groups and and we are using the same muscles but um, certainly very different um, you know use of those muscles and the amount that we're using each muscle group so you know in terms of do we need to do it within each I think we have to also think about where the athlete sits within each you know if they're coming from a background of of a lot of cycling um, do we need to do as much high intensity or are they able to actually handle volume? So if they're able to handle volume and it's not affecting their running so much, potentially we don't need, you know, as much high intensity. Um, And then if we go to the run, we have to consider, as you talked about, the impact. So, um, you know, if we're talking about 20% of time um, in zone at above threshold running, um, you know, we're starting to really talk about for some athletes quite a lot of volume of fast running. So something that we'd really have to be careful with with the impact. Yeah, at the same time with running for triathletes, I think that it's actually a reason that a lot of triathletes can become really fast runners without doing anywhere near as much running as runners do. That running with the amount of time that is taken up by uh, cycling, but also swimming running volume isn't necessarily that high even in long distance triathletes and even on the professional side some are very low volume so so i think running if you stick to to the training density distribution there of like 80 20 or 90 10 or something like even a 90 10 would for for many be a very very small amount of of time in zone so i actually think that 80 20 is probably something that still gets you a, a decent amount of time in the higher zones but for most uh, of course if you are somebody that really trains a lot or focuses on the run at the moment then yes you might need to be more careful but for most i think that that's it's possible without overdoing it if you have built up b- built up to it you're not just jumping into a program and suddenly jumping from five hours a week of training to 15 hours per week of training total yeah, and I mean, even if we consider, let's just consider at the elite level of running. I mean, if we're looking at hours per week versus, say, an elite Ironman athlete, um, you know, we're probably seeing an elite Ironman athlete do double, if not more, in terms of total time um, of training. So, you know, I think that, as you spoke about before, that we do have to consider the difference between a triathlete and a single sport athlete. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so a couple of points from my side i yeah definitely agree with the the central adaptations the the heart and cardiovascular system there and how they uh, overlap in in many ways so my general answer to the question is that no you should not uh, consider the disciplines 
uh, as independently you should consider consider triathlon as as one sport and and plan your intensity your higher intensity and your lower intensity uh, as if you're doing one sport and then you can you can move things around and you can maybe have a period where you focus more on high intensity in in one discipline than another you could uh, as the uh, as martin who is asking this question suggests uh, potentially do all your uh, hard all of your hard uh, training time in a week could be done on the bike uh, of course you should still do that low intensity work on the bike as well because as we mentioned that's yeah, yes, a, a really yeah. really key stimulus it doesn't mean that you're, you do 100 of your bike training is, is high intensity but 100 of your high intensity could be on the bike uh, that's, that's yeah i think that's a very possible. good um very good point to make there yeah i think that's something that we probably didn't discuss earlier but certainly agree with you on that one um i think the other part of that question um was about you know that he was coming back from an injury as well um which basically is preventing him from really doing that run intensity as he returns um and as you know that's certainly something i can relate to having come back from some fairly catastrophic run injuries um you know and i've found just completely anecdotally um that doing you know most of if not all bar say some strides or some pickups uh, of my running you know well below ironman heart rate so you know well below aerobic threshold is has been extremely beneficial for me coming back from um you know a fractured navicular and, and subsequent surgery um i think that you know it's it's been a process but just watching that pace um you know we're talking 15 beats 20 beats below aerobic threshold but seeing you know the pace at that heart rate you know just increase and, and it's not something that happens in in weeks you know this is something that's taken months and, and we're looking at kind of six months now um it's a slow process but you know you see that that happens and you see you know that does transfer really well um you know as you move up the heart rates as well yeah and and that's definitely a a good example of when it might make sense to really limit or eliminate intensity in in one discipline and you can do more potentially on the on the swim and the bike absolutely i i think that one actual key point that i want to point out from from my side at least i really don't i mean i i do track the training intensity distribution and look at the percentages a little bit but i'm pretty suspicious of it because i think that uh like that retaining data integrity uh, is super difficult like you will have workouts i have like every single week there are a couple of athletes that have some sort of issues with their data it's uh one power pedal isn't working so even though they're doing threshold works it's registering as a recovery ride or that sort of thing and uh, and that happens all the time so so i just think that it's very difficult to accurately track these things uh, which means that i don't really want to rely on on having given percentages that this is the percentage that works and this is a percentage that doesn't work because inevitably uh, we will fail to to reach that because of the difficulty in in acquiring really good data day in day out for months and years of time at some point something will get messed up and and then we the tracking will basically be be rubbish so for me i i i prefer an approach where actually i find a weekly pattern and this is something that we discussed i think in the base training episode we did a while back 
uh, like a weekly structure that the athlete can do week in week out essentially and uh, and then it doesn't really matter too much what the intensity distribution is but if it's something that they can do they can keep the high quality work high quality they don't get too tired they don't get too fatigued then that's something that is sustainable and that we can repeat and then we can maybe do some small changes gradual changes from there if we feel that that's needed but establishing that baseline to me is more important than establishing what the correct training intensity distribution in terms of percentages would be oh i couldn't agree more and and, you know i think your key word there is is gradual um you know we're making small changes week to week here and and you know some weeks it might not even be any change you know just you know hitting a, a what you know we might call a basic week consistently um over a long period of time it's just unbeatable i think um you know it's been shown time and time again and you see a lot of these studies on on elite level athletes is you know volume throughout the year you know potentially comes down a bit during the competition phase but again you know that's probably dependent on how much they're racing for say a triathlete um who's only racing three or four times a year um you know that reduction in volume might be quite sharp for a shorter period of time as opposed to you know a cyclist that's racing twice a week in crits for three months a year is is a very different but um you know i think that having that consistent volume for a long period of time through the year is is absolutely critical yeah yeah and uh and and i agree just coming back to sorry i just wanted to mention on that point you met with the with the data integrity as well like you know for instance if you send an athlete out on a recovery ride and they live somewhere where it's inevitable to go up hills i'm really not expecting them to get off their bike and walk because they can't you know stay below aerobic threshold because the hill's too steep um you know i think you know we also have to be practical sometimes as well yeah i think session rp is great that is something that i track and that is something where i think that i can really get good data integrity if the athlete rates all of their sessions which isn't a difficult thing to do it's just a habit and uh, then I have in WKO, which sinks the training peaks, I have a histogram of of the session RPE uh, of my athlete. So I can look at look back at, for example, the last 30 days of training or the last 90 days or whatever it is and see, well, how many sessions did they rate as a 1 out of 10, 2 out of 10, 3 out of 10, and, and so on and so forth. And that gives me a better idea, I would say, of how hard they're training and their training intensity distribution than any of the other histograms which are power histograms heart rate histograms and and so on yeah i think um that's that is great and i think potentially you and i may be straying in terms of rpe as to what is low intensity maybe we stray by about one i think you usually say a four out of ten whereas sometimes i might bump it up to a five but um yeah, I think we're fairly, fairly similar on that perspective as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and for some some low, like for example, I had some advanced athletes. I might send out for a four hour ride where two two and a half hours of that is at LT one. And if they're a good cyclist, that's going to be a pretty hard uh, ride. So the RPE might be a six out of ten. It still yeah. goes into uh, sort of a siler low intensity workout. But that workout, I might actually, in my mind, consider a pretty solid at least moderate workout because just because of the way that it will feel and uh, uh, so that's that's again it just goes to show that how you uh, riding at lt1 
in the fourth hour of a ride is very different than doing it in the uh, in the first hour or one hour ride and also again, depending I mean, on how fit you are yeah i mean i had an athlete do a virtual everything last weekend and it's like you know by hour 10 um you know i think we can safely assume that even though it's below lt1 we're probably not looking at a three or four out of ten yeah yeah and uh, one one thing that i also wanted to mention here that i have in my notes is this is something that uh, we will uh, the listeners will hear more about in just a couple of weeks when i have sebastian weber on for another interview as you mentioned he talked about the way that he uh, plans training for his athletes uh includes actually looking at the carbohydrate demands of the session so when athletes have gone through testing so that you can have a good idea of how much carbohydrate they burn at different intensities uh, then what he does is to look at that carbohydrate combustion and uh, a session that's going to use up a lot of carbohydrate that will simply uh, require more recovery before you can do another really hard session uh, or and just simply the time between moderate hard easy sessions is adjusted based on how much carbohydrate you burn and how much you can realistically replace and that brings up an interesting perspective in that obviously again as we have mentioned that 350 or 400 watt ftp uh, pro cyclist they will be burning a lot more carbohydrate than a 200 ftp uh, rider or 150 ftp watt ftp rider so uh, I do. I do think that there's actually quite an interesting aspect of a potential um, potential adjustment there in training that the less fit uh, athletes definitely can. I would say get away with doing a lot more moderate to high intensity training. The question is whether they will benefit from it because you might not. The goal is not necessarily to maximize your high intensity or moderate intensity training. It's to maximize training adaptations. And as we've talked about already uh, many times, uh, we said that that low intense training is a powerful stimulus, and uh, that's something that everybody, even the also the beginners, or as much as anybody, need to do that. But I do think that potentially for the more time limited athletes, especially the ones that are towards the lower end of caloric expenditure because of lower fitness, they might be able to have a slightly higher skew towards the moderate and high intensity training versus the really uh, really uh, fit athletes with really high ftps and threshold paces and so on yeah i mean i, I tend to agree and, and look you know I, this is something i had in my notes you know when you're talking about athletes that are pushing up into that really high volume let's just say over 20 hours a week you know i think that's a that's a really good way to look at it because in terms of just fueling the work um to do that if you were doing you know, a really high proportion of that, you know, over aerobic threshold, um, you know, pushing up to anaerobic threshold or above, like just as you mentioned, the amount of carbohydrate use um, can can be quite huge. Um, you know, even at aerobic threshold, yes, fat oxidation might be very, very high and, and it probably is in most elite athletes, but, you know, your absolute, you know, energy demands mean that you're still having to use quite a lot of carbohydrate so fueling that work is um you know quite tough whereas as you mentioned as you as you move down let's just talk about cycling here you know let's just say 150 watts um you know fueling that is is certainly uh not as difficult to do but you know we do have to consider the benefits that do come with working um 
below aerobic threshold and and you know i still think for athletes across the board we do want to improve that fat oxidation and and working in those lower zones is important exactly yeah yeah so so that's the i think one of the main points to to take from this that even if you can do more high intensity it doesn't always mean that it's the the best thing to do because actually the the stimulus needed for an athlete might be that uh, low intensity work and for many athletes more at the beginner side of the spectrum that's something that is definitely lacking so again i don't think that there's a magic percentage that you need to hit necessarily but i def- definitely think that even if you are somebody who is training only four or five hours per week and you theoretically could week in week out do mostly high intensity training that's not the best way to improve uh, by by any stretch yeah uh, far far from it and you know i probably have said this every time i've come on the podcast but you know for anyone unless you're planning to you know win kona this year and, and then retire um you know it's always valuable to take a step back and and have that thirty thousand foot view um and think long term with with all these training approaches as well i mean long-term consistency is is really the key and um, you know, I think that's why we see athletes still being so successful into, you know, the mid to late 30s and if not 40 plus, if you look at Cam Brown or Crowey or um, Natasha Budman, all those athletes, you know, um, that's years and years of, of aerobic work um, that's, you know, coming and really showing at that kind of later age. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just looking through the question again so uh, do you think we answered it uh, i think that our conclusion is that basically you don't you don't have to consider it uh, consider the training intensity distribution individually per discipline but equally when it comes to considering it in terms of your entire triathlon program it's about more than just just looking at percentages but considering what the stimulus you get out of different types of workouts are and uh, what your fitness level is whether you are coming back from an injury and so on then if it might make sense to make some changes in running for example uh, there are many more things to, that go into this and uh, the time in zone or percentage distribution isn't by any means a master metric that rules them all like there are just you, you need to have a holistic view of uh, many of these things so i hope that our discussion has uh, illuminated that aspect of uh, planning training yeah and i think you know what i always come back to is don't be afraid of that that low intensity work um it's hugely valuable and it's not just you know it's not just a means to um you know a filler for the high intensity work it's actually in and of itself hugely valuable um and and can be very enjoyable as well oh yeah yeah well one one of my biggest pet peeves in triathlon or endurance sports is the term tss filler for low intensity yeah. work that, that, that really gets me going yeah it's, we could have not, a whole podcast it, on on tss yeah um yeah well yeah, I think that we did a decent job of of really uh, trying to sell the, <laughs> the the benefits of low intensity training as uh, something that is part of your quality training, just as high intensity and moderate intensity can be. That yeah, so, and I think uh, for this, 
Oh, I just want to say for this athlete returning from an injury, you know, that's especially, um, you know, something to listen to as well. Don't rush into the high intensity. It's not something that you do need to rush into and, you know, rehabbing the injury and and making sure you're strong um, is certainly going to be your number one priority. Yeah, and just for context, I, because I did shorten the question here that I read out on air, but uh, the original question was longer, and you have seen that, and that is why oh, okay, sorry, this, yeah. this athlete be, being injured, but I didn't actually mention yeah. it. So for listeners, uh, that uh, that's the context here. But yes, it, it makes sense, and uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's something that is sensible to do to uh, limit or eliminate intensity for now in running. And yes, you, that probably means that you can do more in cycling and swimming when, when that opens up. But again, that doesn't mean license to not do the low intensity work as well on the bike and the swim. Yeah, there's a big difference between can do and should do. So just remember yeah. that. All right. Uh, thanks, Loki. Anything else that we have missed and should mention? Uh, no, not at my end. I think, think we did a good job. All right. Perfect. Uh, talk to you later then. Bye-bye. Thanks. See you. Bye. So that's it for today. Thank you, Martin, for the question. And keep sending in questions, everybody, to michael at scientifictriathlon.com. And that's Michael with a K. As I said at the beginning, let us know what you think about these co-hosted Q&As. If it's something you'd like to hear more of, I would be really keen to make that happen because I certainly think that uh, I get the most out of it when when I talk with somebody else and not just... Uh, spit out my own thoughts into the podcast universe we have links in the episode description in your podcast app to a number of related resources podcast episodes previous podcast episodes and the article mentioned by Loki by alan cousins which was on how trainable vo2 max is but also mentioning things regarding stroke volume and how it relates to volume of training also, make sure that you listen to last week's Q&A, Q&A number 87, where I discussed a bit more about the, the issues with maintaining data integrity when it comes to tracking training intensity distribution. So we went into a bit of that here, but I went into more detail uh, last week, even if that was specific to swimming. But the general concepts do apply to all sports. Also, a final reminder that uh, this is the last week that the beginner Ironman training plan is uh, on its launch uh, offer so you can get it for 60% off until Sunday the 31st of May so this Sunday if you're listening when this episode goes out check that out you can get all the information on scientifictriathlon.com click through to the training plans page and if you need even more information then just email me michael at scientifictriathlon.com big thanks to our sponsors Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com Go and get a free hydration plan and use the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15 to get 15% off your electrolyte order. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you as always for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.